Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the Stewart Foundation and the Heising Simons Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, vaccines were front and center this week in the school reopening wars, and we'll look at California's efforts to get vaccines to teachers and other school employees to remove at least one obstacle to getting kids back to class. And we'll look at another form of testing, the annual standardized tests that millions of students typically take in the spring, at least when there's not a pandemic keeping them out of school. We'll also discuss whether California schools will be required to administer them, and if so, when, how, and in what form. Well, John, let's start with vaccines, which have become a major factor in whether teachers and other school employees are willing to go back to their school campuses so kids can attend in-person classes. We're pleased to have with us Alameda County Superintendent of Schools, L.K. Monroe. Her county has been a leader in coming up with priorities for vaccinating teachers. Welcome, Superintendent Monroe. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, a week ago or so, Governor Newsom indicated that he wanted to reserve about 10% of vaccines for school employees in the coming weeks. In fact, he made the announcement at your offices, right? He did. Well, about a week later, the state now has issued guidelines for how to actually do that. I think uh, people have been wondering how they would prioritize getting those vaccines out. Could you just give us a rough idea of what the state has in mind on that front? Certainly. So what this announcement says is that in order to uh, ensure that this 10% set aside is prioritized for those who need it most who are in the education workforce. So just to give you a sense of the education workforce, yes, it's teachers, but it is also bus drivers and food service workers and teacher's aides and any number of folks who serve students when we're in in in-person instruction. So setting aside 10%, the governor's office has said, all right, for the 58 counties, We are giving county offices of ed the responsibility of saying, according to the priorities, who gets served first. So the priorities outlined broadly, the top tier is for those who are currently in instruction. So as we know, some of our education workforce has been in front of students, with students since last March. And then some will be going back in the next few weeks. So making sure that those folks who have been in front of students, with students, and those who will soon be going back are prioritized. But on top of that, many of your listeners may know that there are equity measures uh, that have been instituted. One of them uh, that California Department of Public Health talks about is the Healthy Places Index, the HPI, which says that there are certain zip codes that are experiencing a disproportionate level of coronavirus infection, and that those are the uh, zones that should be prioritized for any number of things, and this included. So in the governor's guidance, when we're prioritizing, you either can use uh, the HPI, which we at Alameda County are using, or you can use free and reduced lunch numbers, unduplicated student count, any number of measures that actually will prioritize those areas that are hardest hit and need attention first in terms of our educators. 
You're also president of the County Superintendents Association, so you have a sense of what's happening statewide. Exactly. Not too many people can fit that bill. That's right. I get to wear both those hats. So convening the 58 county superintendents also to have these conversations about what would work for the county offices. For our office, yes, it's been a lift, but we have, as most county offices do, very close relationships with our district. So they basically had a 48-hour turnaround gave them the priorities and said, please uh, categorize your workforce according to these four priorities. And really what the state has put out is the top priority that everyone is supposed to be focused on. And then counties are doing shades of that. So I'm assuming that all counties then will follow this, that they will get the set aside of 10% and then they should be doing prioritization based on these uh, criteria. So In Alameda County, does that mean, frankly, that a district such as Oakland will get a bigger share, bigger proportion than, say, Albany of the vaccines? Yes. So it'll be given to the county in aggregate, but that will be taken into consideration, the size of the districts that are within the county. Obviously, Albany is a smaller district than Oakland. I was thinking relative to the percentage of low-income students or where neighborhoods in Oakland that are disproportionately affected have been. That's actually where the priority or the criteria come into play. So the numbers won't necessarily differ. 10% is also insufficient to vaccinate all of the educators that are in Alameda County. And that's true for every county. The supply has not yet caught up with the demand. Yeah. Does that also mean that uh, elementary school teachers will get a priority over, say, high school and middle school because they're more likely to go back in the next several weeks? Those who are poised to return or have been with students will be the ones who are uh, prioritized first. So we will get a particular amount of vaccine and it will be distributed or administered according to those tiers. And quite honestly, in the Bay Area, we have had a lot of members of the education workforce, especially teachers, get vaccinated at the uh, mega site. So that's what we're working on now, who has already been vaccinated and then making sure that we're reaching out to those who haven't. And the mega site is at the Oakland Coliseum. It is. There's one in Southern California and uh, the one in Northern California is at the Oakland Coliseum. Given a priority system, Superintendent, do you think that this will enable elementary schools in your county to open in late March or early April? Will this be the jumpstart that districts need? I'm going to say it'll be one of several. This is a critical one, though. It's something that educators have been asking for, and I'm really excited to be able to offer this. Just following up on John's question, there have been concerns that introducing the vaccine issue into the equation would slow down the opening of schools. I mean, the state has said you don't have to be vaccinated in order to open schools safely. Many have. And so if we're going to wait until everybody is vaccinated, this is going to push school openings definitely into April. And it could be mid-April or maybe even later. So do you have concerns that while we all agree in a perfect world, everybody would be vaccinated, meantime, the school year is ticking away? That's right. I have great concerns, uh, particularly for the students who need to be in person the most. That's the thing that keeps me up at night. What is going on for those kids and their families in those communities? And a lot of them are in those communities that are elevated by the Healthy Places Index. But as you said, the state is not mandating this and not all districts are making this a condition of return. Some are, 
um, but not all are. Uh, we have um, a couple of districts that are already back without their educators all having been vaccinated. And across the state, uh, with my hat on for the 58 county superintendents organization, there are whole counties that have been back in some form for quite some time. But given that opening is incremental, starting with the lowest grades, those districts who have made it a condition, it's still a rolling proposition. It's not that every employee needs to be vaccinated before a, a school district can reopen. How about districts that have not reached memorandums of understanding with their teachers and really don't have plans at this point to go back? Will they be pushed further back in the line? Almost everyone has learning hubs, which are what the state guidance allowed for, which are small groups and bringing back your students who are most in need of in-person instruction. Some of that is special ed. Some of that is foster youth, English language learners. It just depends. So districts are, are making sure that those employees are on the list. So everybody has a list. Everybody will have employees who get vaccinated. Those who are opening soonest for in-person instruction will have the largest number. You were once a teacher school principal. Mm -hmm. So just putting on that hat, how do you feel about students going back in April, literally a few weeks before, in some cases, before the end of the school year? Is that really worth it, the effort that's being made now to get kids back in April? Some people would say, let's just ride out the school year, get everybody vaccinated, and then come back in the fall. Where do you come down on that one? So some people are saying that. Some people say, you know, and, and as I said, some communities are actually saying that. In my opinion, school is the best place for our students. It absolutely is, uh, even in the midst of a pandemic. So I feel it is absolutely worth pushing for, even if a student is only back for a short amount of time, just being able to get reconnected to adults who have obviously the greatest connection to their learning and also care for them in ways that complement what's going on at home ideally is critically important. So even for a few weeks it's uh, it's good for those kids. I do think that there is a tipping point. You know, if you're in May and you have 2 weeks obviously that's going to raise a question. But if you're looking at March, a lot of our schools are looking at this month, especially as Alameda County is on the precipice of being in the red tier, they're looking at March. And clearly, teachers will be asked to go back before they are fully immunized because that's a six weeks process. Do you think that teachers will be willing to go back even though they're in line to get the shots, but haven't gotten that second shot, say? So that varies. You know, there are some teachers who will be willing to go back and have gone back, I'm just going to say, in, in many places and are getting the shot while they're back in their jobs. And there will be others who are making those decisions. This is something that, you know, you, you mentioned MOUs, you mentioned the discussions that are happening with district labor partners. These are the conversations that are going on in real time. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Superintendent L.K. Monroe, Superintendent of Schools for Alameda County. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. With the perspective of a teacher who lives and teaches in one of the areas most stricken by COVID, Southeast Los Angeles, we're pleased to have with us Eber Marquez. He is a teacher and intervention coordinator at the Maywood Center for Enriched Studies, a grade 6 to 12 magnet program in Los Angeles Unified. 
In fact, Eber is an unusual teacher. He's the mayor pro tem of Maywood, a small, very densely populated city of 28,000 between Long Beach and downtown L.A. It's a predominantly Latino working class community. Welcome, Eber. Yeah, thank you for having me. So tell us what it's been like, particularly since the new year, teaching and living in one of the more impacted areas of the pandemic. What's, what's it like for you and your families? It hasn't been easy, whether it be a parent, a student, and even teachers. Uh, as a teacher, I definitely have to take into consideration what, try to imagine what the households for every one of my students is like and how I am able to produce any academic anything, any, any assessments, any, any learning, any teaching, because definitely that's not the priority for a lot of the families that I serve. Just to clarify, have you been in the classroom or doing things remotely? It's all been remotely since March 16, 2020. We've been home. Well, let me just ask you about the vaccine issue now. To what extent is that going to make a difference in terms of you getting back to school? And are teachers now going to be vaccinated? What's, what's the lay of the land in Maywood? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's an important question. You know, vaccination in, in the city of Maywood in Southeast LA has been very low in our communities. Actually, um, I put some numbers and we have about 7.7% of Maywood residents that have been vaccinated. So that's roughly about 1,500 residents. We have about 30,000 residents here in the city. So that's a very small number. What is the position of your teachers union on vaccinations? Are they saying you need to be vaccinated or they want teachers to be vaccinated before they go back? Yes, I am part of the union. That is one of the expectations that in order for teachers to return, they get vaccinated. Obviously, that county numbers, COVID numbers around our areas in LAUSD decrease, I believe, to the red tier. Uh, we've been in the purple tier for quite a while now. And then safety protocols at all schools, you know, all across the district. So I know those are three expectations from the union. What would it take for your parents to send their children back? There's been multiple surveys sent out to parents for the last couple months. And parents don't feel safe, at least in the Southeast LA, sending their kiddos back. One thing that will help parents feel safer is teachers, adults that are working at schools, getting vaccinated. The state now wants to prioritize access to these vaccines for teachers and school employees based on the percentage of low-income students, the level of risk in a community. By those standards, Maywood should get quite a lot of vaccines. Do you think that we're moving in the right direction on that front? And do you think Maywood, in fact, would end up getting more vaccines? Yeah, I, I am excited for this, you know, proposal. I hope it does it does happen. Communities like Maywood need to be prioritized in having accessibility to vaccines because we are a community that's been hit pretty intensely. So having accessibility to vaccine in this community is definitely going to help everybody feel safer. I've been able to help a handful of 65 plus residents. And as soon as I set an appointment, they already say, I already feel immune to this. I haven't felt this much peace in almost a year. Well, we've been speaking with Eber Marquez, who is a teacher at the Maywood Center for Enriched Studies in Los Angeles Unified. Thank you for sharing your experiences with us and good luck. And I hope there are plenty of vaccines going to your community soon. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Luis, do you think this will make a difference? 
Yes, John, I think it will, but I'm also not sure it'll get enough kids back as quickly as many parents were like. And uh, remember that the governor is not saying that teachers need to be vaccinated to get back to school. The CDC actually says the same thing. Also, let's remember many school districts have kids back in school without teachers and school staff being vaccinated. Yes, but now teachers will be rewarded for going back to school by getting in front of a line ahead of other teachers. And Governor Newsom is creating an incentive for more districts and teachers unions to settle negotiations so that they can get expedited access to shots as well. Well, let's shift gears to focus on another tough issue, testing, not for COVID-19, but for English, math and science. Under state and federal law, school districts are required to administer standardized tests each spring to millions of students in California. They call the Smarter Balance tests in English language arts and math, and they're aligned with the Common Core. You know, last year, Lewis, the state and the federal government suspended the requirement for a standardized test because we were in the throes of the pandemic. But this year, the Biden administration said it doesn't want to give states a blanket waiver from the tests the way they did last year. For many, the idea of having to take tests that really have little meaning for kids and parents during a pandemic, including many kids who aren't even in the classroom to take the test, seems rather daunting, if not ridiculous. Well, on the other hand, the state and the federal government have an interest in keeping tabs on how students are doing, and in fact, which schools and which districts are doing better than others, and even using information they get for schools to help them guide instruction. The State Board of Education grappled with this issue for hours this week. We're pleased to have with us Brooks Allen, Executive Director of the State Board of Education, also an advisor to Governor Newsom on education policy to help clarify this very complex issue of testing and where we stand right now. Welcome, Brooks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This week, the acting secretary of education let the states know that um, they're going to have to do some testing as required under the Every Student Succeeds Act, but giving the states a huge amount of flexibility. Could you just help clarify? They made it quite clear that they are not inviting a blanket waiver of assessment as they did last year, but they are looking to provide a fair amount of flexibility, and in particular, Uh, A real focus for the board yesterday uh, was a particular line uh, where they recognized that individual states may need flexibility based on the specific circumstances across or within the state uh, and really invited states to talk with them and talk about the individual needs and conditions. And when I'd have to say for a lot of parents and lots of students, I mean, particularly high school students who really wonder what the point of all these tests are. I mean, these are low-stakes tests. They don't have any direct implications for kids. And so in the middle of this pandemic, to have to be doing these tests, and they, they take quite a bit of time. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not just something you can get over you know, in a, in a couple of hours. These tests actually administered over a period of days. And I know on the state board this week, there were a lot of questions about even having to do it. No, that's right. And I think if you're able to listen to the deliberations of the state board this week, you would have heard that that was really front and center for them. A great deal of concern about what the uh, impact and import of any data gathered could be for students this year. So if the board has its way, what would a test look like this spring leading into what, summer? Or is that even clear at this point, what it would look like? Yeah, I I think at this point, part of this is 
the board was looking at uh, what the federal government had offered, as you said, nearly 48 hours before. In fact, not even that. And looking to see uh, what's offered. And one of the things that the board has pointed to previously is it already taken actions to shorten the English language arts and math assessments to really shorten the amount of time that was required for those. And then looked and really one of the very first actions, in fact, the first motion the board uh, took up was to say, let's take full advantage of the flexibility being offered by the federal government. So are the Smarter Balance tests able to be given to students who are at home? They are. In fact, the, the State Department of Ed has uh, spent uh, many months working very hard with uh, districts up and down the state to ensure that there are remote assessment options for how to do that. And of course, that's not ideal. And one of the things that uh, the board really emphasized, and in fact, the federal government emphasized with their guidance, is students should not be brought back in person solely for assessment. Right. That, that's the last thing that anybody wants, while also recognizing that there are there have been great efforts to provide remote assessment options but recognizing that there's also many challenges, particularly given the deep uh, digital divide that we face and other issues up and down the state with doing that. So, uh, Brooks, let me just ask you on where we stand on the shorter test. And shortening doesn't seem like such an easy thing to do. I mean, <laughs> because presumably the test was the current length for a reason to be able to really, you know, assess how students are doing. Yeah, there, there was a great effort made by the Smarter Balance Consortium uh, and others to do that. And in fact, the testing window for English language arts and math started earlier this week on, on February 22nd. And so those, those are tests that are currently available and they are shorter. And there was a lot of discussion back in our January meeting uh, about how to ensure that that would be possible to offer those shorter assessments for this year. Well, I hear a lot of dread, even from parents in my back of my mind saying, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous, this is terrible. Give us a positive outlook why this is important and why, in fact, parents should encourage their students to take this test, even though, you know, no one likes to, at this point in time, take a standardized test. Yeah, I think it all comes down to whether the assessments that are used are useful for teaching and learning. And I think about even my own daughter taking, uh, using, you know, there's Lexile measures. And one of the things the state did last year is to come out, you know, with additional measures that could be used to help inform uh, in real time, the teaching and learning of students to find out where they are. And you know, one of the, the great desires that we heard expressed uh, yesterday as we try to wrestle with all of these factors is, you know, how can we come up with information that really can be useful to assess where our students are, particularly given uh, what we've all been living through for nearly the past full year? And if it can help inform where there are those gaps that need to be addressed, where additional supports are needed, some of these tools can really be quite valuable for that. And that's really what the board has asked us to do is to try to come back with additional options for them to consider that, again, keeps students uh, at the heart of the conversation and talks about when we come back, what data would be useful for those purposes. And if it's not uh, useful, then how do we make sure that we're avoiding that? And quickly, Brooks, uh, Alan, when will you be coming back? Because obviously this is some urgency to this, right? We're right in the middle of testing season right now, or what would normally be testing season. So uh, the next board meeting is scheduled for March 17th and 18th. The board has asked us to come back at least by then, uh, if any earlier at possible. But we would anticipate likely coming back for that board meeting to bring those options to them. I'm sure lots of people will be looking to see what the board actually comes up with. Thanks for talking with us today. Brooks Allen, Executive Director of the State Board of Education and Advisor to Governor Newsom on Education Policy. Right. Thank you for having me. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks again, Kobe, for making all this possible during this pandemic. 
Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. Stay well. We'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>